negotiating is just problem solving. We are negotiating every day of our lives and trying to problem solve. One of our great strengths is our ability to advocate on behalf of the greater good. We're brilliant at advocating for others. We're not good at advocating for ourselves. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the 52 Weeks of Me podcast. I'm Jacqueline Osborne. And I'm Erica Brooks. This podcast is a platform for men and women to share their challenges and lessons they face throughout their journey toward achieving greater life balance through the four pillars of health and, of course, prioritizing the number one asset, you. Amazing. Let's get started. All right, Sheila, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so, so happy to have you. Before we kick it off, can you tell us about yourself? Sure. I'm a child of the South. I have always been about the people. I was a low-income child, and I was really lucky that my mother signed me into the Big Brother Big Sister program. And my big sister was Dr. Susan Socher. She was head of cancer research at MD Anderson Hospital. So she would take me to the lab on Saturdays, and we would play with experiments. We got to see the little rats. That Susan took me to my first play, my first museums, my first concerts, classical music, and all of that sort of coming together sort of informed who I became and the things that I love. So in my grown-up life, in the last, let's say, 10 years or so, I've been traveling the world internationally coaching. And every time I go to a new city, the first thing I do is, okay, where's the museum? What's the concert? Pre-COVID, right, in Paris, many of the great cathedrals in Paris had these beautiful concerts, classical concerts in the evenings. I was in Krakow and got to see the Da Vinci's Lady with Ermine, which is really famous, one of the few paintings he has left of women that he's actually done. So I feel very fortunate about that. I wanted to be a lawyer, then I wanted to be a psychologist, and then I wound up with a scholarship in theater at the University of Houston, which is one of the great stage acting schools. It was really about directing that was most interesting to me. So not being the actress, although you have to learn that part before you can be a great director. For me, it was about what's going on with the human beings. How are they internalizing? How are they playing out their roles? And their lives. And then that led me, believe it or not, once I moved to the East Coast, I'm like, what do people do? Oh, they go into finance. So I had a 15 plus year career at UBS. And I brought all that stuff together of being a leader, of being a director. And out of that, I went into coaching. And I've been coaching internationally, as I said, for more than, more than a decade. So communications, executive presence, key talents, sales, negotiations. That is amazing. And I, I did not know about the Big Brother Big Sister, but thank you for sharing that. And I just, I have to share my own appreciation for that program. My mother has been a big sister since I was a little girl and her little sister is part of our family. So from, this is probably when I was 10. So we're talking about 30 years now. She continues to be at my house once a week. She continues to work for my mother. That program, and again, my story is slightly different than yours, but just hearing it from how you explain it and knowing what I know about it, that is just so amazing. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. And Susan and I are still in touch. We check in with each other from time to time. There was a long gap where I lost her. And actually it was last year. I said, you know, let me just try one more time. And we reconnected. So it's just been lovely catching up. And it's amazing. She said, the minute I heard your voice, I looked you up on LinkedIn. And as soon as I saw that smile, smile, I knew you were my, my little girl. And I got really excited when you mentioned MD Anderson, because that's where my stepdad got treated for cancer. And he's now cancer free. And he was doing um, work in the, in the cancer research as well, but at LSU. 
you when I was growing up. One thing that I I know about MD Anderson, I think is so interesting is that it's one of the only, and I say only, this is a very sweeping generalization. I don't want to you know misspeak here, but MD Anderson actually looks at the integrated approach to cancer therapy. So they, we were talking before we started recording about the four pillars of health, right? So they're looking at exercise and nutrition and stress management as part of the attack on cancer and not just, not just chemo. And I'm using air quotes there because, you know, that's a very important part of it, but they also look at the whole being. And when we think about people, when we think about health, there's so much more than just the pill for an ill as we we've, we've, we've spoke about before, right? And I love that. So I get really excited when I hear about MD Anderson connections because it's just, it comes all full circle, not to mention the Southern Louisiana connection. So one of the things that I hear and recognize is you had a major shift from working at UBS during the credit crisis to moving into coaching. Can we talk a little bit about that movement and the why, the what, the how? There's just so much in there. If you can help us unpack that a little bit and and how you did it and why you did it. Well, at UBS, I was fortunate enough. I was sort of the the internal mobility poster child. So I just kept getting recruited in-house from one role, started in operational risk, got recruited into asset management, was on, raised the the team that raised the first $15 billion dollars for their alternatives hedge fund platform on the fundified side. It was the O'Connor Group, which is a great brand. Then I got recruited into fixed income. You know, I thought, woo, okay, this is great. And then the world just exploded. I just sort of looked around after the dust started settling. I'm like, okay, I've been doing this for five years. I've been holding a fire hose for five years. What do I want to do? I was a key talent along the way. And so I benefited from some great coaching from a two-year program at UBS called Ascent. I was very close to those program managers because it was a two-year journey. And I saw a job posting one day about cross-divisional business development in HR. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I've worked in risk in asset management. My clients were the wealth advisors. And now in fixed income and working closely with the investment bank, I had worked through all the business lines of UBS. So I applied. And then I had a really fun job for like four years, bringing together different people from the firm to help them build relationships with each other, networks with each other. And out of that globally, just by creating touch points, we generated billions of dollars in net new money. And it was fun because it was real. I mean, it was coaching and learning based on reality. And then another little change in 2016, I got an opportunity to go to London with McKinsey and work with McKinsey for three weeks to design a business partnering program, which was for the non-revenue producers, the great lawyers, the risk people, to help them build, be more impactful in their communication skills. Because often they're the ones advising the risk takers, the revenue producers. But from a skill perspective, we tend to, firms tend to invest in the revenue producers first. So there's a bit of inequality uh, when you're trying to make things happen for the greater good of the firm. And so that three weeks sat at a table in London with three McKenzie folks and we designed this business partnering program for finance at UBS. And that really was the takeoff of traveling internationally, coaching internationally. And then I got to a point where I'm like, okay, well, I've done this. Now, what do I want to do? So you get a trend here. I have this attention span that's about four years long. And then I need a new challenge, although I don't need to leave the firm. But I had this great boss named Jerry Schrack, and Jerry's now at Sumitomo. I was having a career development conversation with him. And I said, Jerry, I feel like I've kind of done it. And he's like, well, what would you do? And I went, well, if I could do anything, I would be a Templar. We work for Templar advisors because from all the vendors I've worked with, me, they are the most impressive. I learned so much from them. 
And Jerry, such a lovely human being, said, have you called them? And I went, no, Jerry, I love working for you. And he said, you know, don't, you know, you don't have to push on an open door, Sheila. Give them a call, see what they say. And it's just been phenomenal. So I coach across all the big investment banks, uh, private equity firms, asset managers, have a specialty in private wealth. Um, and then, of course, you know, the non-revenue producers as well. And that actually led to focusing on women. And so once again, it was like going through a process and taking a look around and go, oh, it wasn't just me. And so out of that is, uh, I, I won't say reluctant, but an unexpected emphasis on women in the workplace and how much great talent there is. And in, in speaking to women and kind of coaching them through these really high profile and powerful positions, are there specific skills that you're working with them that are more themed and common? From my perspective, diversity is a kaleidoscope. It's not just gender. It's, it's age, it's geography, it's culture. And certain men have some of the same challenges that women do. But from a women's perspective, you know, we can roll them up into high level things like finding one's confidence. You know, we have self-esteem, which can be one level and confidence can be at another level. And we have to get those into harmony. So there's the confidence piece. Speaking up, we all have unconscious biases. So without even realizing it, we can easily backtrack into how we were raised. Be good girls, don't speak up, don't make noise. We tend to self-inflict because we can revert back to those behaviors and it makes us doubt ourselves, second guess ourselves, pull ourselves back. Not, not all women, but certain women. And things like asking, you know, uh, women and a lot of men don't love networking, but men tend to be really good at building their networks. I, my view is, is because most of them were raised playing team sports. Now women are coming up and playing team sports, but you know, we were playing tennis, we were riding horses, you know, we were doing the solo things. And so we didn't learn early on about team play and where on one moment I can be on your team and it's absolutely fine at another moment I can be your one-on-one -on -one competitor. And at the end of the day, we're still buddies. You know, women finding political capital, understanding that, speaking up, and certainly negotiations. Uh, women negotiate differently. A lot of women don't like negotiating. The social behaviorists tell us so. And so those are some of the things I think of when I think of, okay, well, where do women are a little different than, than men? Let's talk about that last one. Even going back to your story about calling up and saying, hey, let's talk, right? That's the start of a negotiation. And I want to dig into that a bit. What exactly do you mean when you say negotiation? Negotiating is just problem solving. We are negotiating every day of our lives and trying to problem solve. It's when we think we're negotiating, we tend to get the nerves up, but we don't realize every transaction that we enter in with another human being is a negotiation to get something done. When you think of negotiation, you think of money. Like that's where my mind goes. You're negotiating your contract for your job. You're negotiating the purchase of a house. You're negotiating something else. And there's always some sort of like context around money, right? Like we're going to spend some cash. Let's talk about how much it's going to be, or I'm going to make some cash. Let's talk about how much it's going to be. But you're, you're right. It is everything we do. We're negotiating things. We're negotiating who's going to do drop off with the kids in the morning, who's going to make the lunches. We're negotiating our daily routines, not only our professional routines, but our home routines too. That's kind of an interesting way to think about how we approach them. So what makes a good negotiator? Because I don't know if I'm a good negotiator when it comes to cash, but I can just about, I will ask for anything. 
Like I will ask for just about, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars. But if you're like, go negotiate 10% raise, I'm like, eh. What makes a good negotiator? Someone who can listen. We need to start with the concept of power. Who's got the power before I even start this conversation? And it doesn't have to be adversarial, but we need to come from a place of, you know, and is this a win-win situation, which we have in our work lives and our relationships? Or is this a win-lose where I'm never going to see the person on the other side of this conversation? So I don't care how they fare. Now, Matt Neal out of Stanford University has the saying, a good negotiation is when you come out better, but your counterparty doesn't necessarily come out worse. And that's honestly, that's all we need to care about. We're allowed to be self-interested. Uh, but we have to know up front, you know, is this going to be a hard win-lose uh, win or win-win? So we need to be good at listening. We need to know what we want. Uh, we need to be able to break down that thing that we want into tangible parts so that we understand what might not be valuable to us could be valuable to them. And therefore, we can trade it off. Uh, people fall into trouble when they say it's all or nothing. That's when things tend to, to go poorly. There's also these concepts around, you know, tactics, and we need to understand what the tactics are that people use against us. Are they outrageously flinching? Are they giving us the silent treatment? Are they using limited authority? For example, when you go to buy a car, you agree the price with the salesperson. What's the first thing the salesperson needs to go do and talk to? Gotta go talk to my manager. Every single time. And so what we need to do as a good negotiator is think, okay, well, what are the steps along the way? So let's use that car. Okay, great. So I'm going to buy this car. Ah, oh, finally, I get the car that I want. Now all of a sudden we feel a little, we feel relieved, but then they're going to go talk to the sales manager and we're like, oh, there's fear of scarcity. They could pull that away. Oh no. Then we panic. It lowers our power. But then the salesperson comes back and always says, great, got it approved. Now, I'm not sure they even spoke to the sales manager. I think they were just yeah. getting a coffee refill. Doesn't, doesn't matter. But then they come back, and what's the next thing they do? I heard you when you said you love music. Would you like to upgrade the stereo? Who needs the all-weather mats? Your kids are going to spill on the back of this car. That's right, and you want your children to be safe, so would you like the better tires? So we call that nibbling at your wallet, meaning, and this is where women and men can differ. Some of us, we've got the deal. We've got that thing that we want. And so everything else that happens, we're just going to say yes to. We don't realize we're actually thrown into a new negotiation. What a lot of women will do is they will hang on to a deal even as the elements are changing because we have a sense about us that once we've made a commitment, we will make a commitment. Whereas other people, and I go more man-ish, is they will say, no, 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 the deal's just changed. This is no longer the deal we started out with. So what we need to do as women or even the men who are a little less comfortable in the game of negotiations is recognize when the deals of the, the terms of the deal have actually changed and take a fresh breath and be willing to walk away if we need to. You hear that one a lot, the be willing to walk away. And I, I always repeat it in my mind, but I feel as if that's easier said than done. Well, and this is where we need to build our chops, right? For those of us who don't want to get too specific, if we don't even know where to start, if we don't have the power, we don't know the real value of the thing, the easiest thing we can ask is, is there room for improvement in what you're offering? Now, whether that's money or whether that's the thing, buy a dozen apples, get one free, I don't know. Is there room for improvement? Most of the time, 
someone's going to come back with something and you're already in a better position and you haven't even anchored yet or given, you know, identified what your wallet ability is. So there's the first thing. And then again, if we don't have the power, really important, we need to just start asking questions. For example, there's a very famous story about Brian Epstein, the manager of the Beatles, who was invited to Hollywood, to Universal, I believe, to sign royalties, a contract to film the movie Hard Day's Night. And Epstein knew all about musical royalties, but he didn't know about movie royalties. So he's having the conversation with Universal and he says, I'm not willing to do this film. My guys aren't making this film for, for less than 10% royalty. So there's this bit of putting our ego aside, which is important in negotiation and being able to ask some questions. So if Epstein had come in and said, you know, you're the expert here. Where would a guy like me start? He simply said 12%. Epstein would have been 2% better. And he would have gotten the signal that there was room to maneuver. And maybe he'd come out with 16%. So there's also this tactic of, we use limited authority when we say, let me go ask my husband or my wife. We use it all the time. The salesperson, let me go ask the sales manager. Uh, we need to recognize what people are deploying against us so that we can make smarter decisions. So we must start with, is there room for improvement? And then take a pause and see what happens. Now with that, it's often thought, and we kind of even alluded to it, that women are bad at negotiating, right? Erica said, you know, ask me about a raise, you know, hold on. But, you know, there's also evidence that suggests empathy, specifically emotional empathy, is actually a core characteristic in a good negotiation. Can we dig into that one a little bit? What are your thoughts? Well, there's empathy and there's, there's compassion, right? I can appreciate your situation. At Templar, we teach objection handling, we teach negotiations, business partnering, all of this stuff. And one of, one of the things that comes up regularly is underneath all of this is fear of rejection, all of it. And, you know, there's that saying, if you weren't afraid of anything today, what would you go out and do? Well, I would negotiate that better price. Um, but to do that, I need to, or negotiate that raise. To do that, I need to have empathy. If we're talking about our own raise, empathy with ourselves, compassion for ourselves, we've done our homework, but also putting ourselves in the other person's chair. You know, a hard lesson I learned during the financial crisis was the shift of a line manager being responsible for being able to allocate percentages of raises and bonus sizes so I could really reward them in a meritocratic way. And then the business shifted to everything being in salary bands. So even the most fabulous person, you could never move the needle too much. So when we're negotiating salaries, whether it's for us or for our team members, we need to realize there's a chance the counterparty on the side of the conversation has a limited band. So you mentioned fear of rejection. I think, I think there's another element to it. And I want to see what your reaction is when I say this. There's also this idea that we don't know what our true value is. And how do you value yourself in a way that's not tied to emotion and is more based in fact? Like, how do you do that? Because again, I'll use the salary thing. That 10% raise for me, I will sit back and go, cool, I'm great. But for people that help me and that report to me, I will fight tooth and nail to make sure they get that 10%. And I will do it in a way that is thoughtful and backed by performance and indicates the cost value of it. But when it comes to my own perception of my own value, it's really easy for me to just say, I'm happy. And that's invaluable. Like, how do you kind of suggest that people weigh those two things, the rejection with the value? 
Erica, you've hit on such an important theme and it does really fall into the, the women's space. One of our great strengths is our ability to advocate on behalf of the greater good. We're brilliant at advocating for others. We're not good at advocating for ourselves. What we need to do is sit on our shoulders as if we are our own best friend and advocate for ourselves. But we, women in general, there's a lot of evidence out there. It's fear of rejection. It's fear of backlash. Those are real things that come up for women much more frequently than men. That man can say, I want this. I want that. I'm worth this. And it just plays differently for us. As much as I hate saying it, it is true. But when we move into a place of advocating on behalf of the greater good, so let's say, Erica, your team needs better technology. So instead of the language of, I need better technology for my team, it's the firm and the team will be able to perform at a much higher level if we invest in our technology. It's the subtle shift because the evidence does show if we go into that me, into that I position, we will get equally judged and backlashed, can, I should say, from women and men. We're not any kinder to each other because of these unconscious biases that we were raised with. Do you talk a lot about that I and I and we language when you're, when you're coaching and moving from we to I? Yes, with women because it helps them find their voices. So for example, in the negotiations, the women's negotiations program at Templar, uh, we put them in a scenario, a two-step scenario. One, they have to go into a role play where they're negotiating for themselves and then for to become a chairwoman of a board of a nonprofit and they fail. And then step two is we say, put them in a situation, we go, okay, same scenario. It's a nonprofit you love. Chairman of the board is positions open. You've got a busy life. You don't want it, but there's another woman on the board that would be phenomenal. Now you're going to go ahead. You're going to prepare and you're going to have the conversation to pitch this other candidate. And they see for themselves how much more effective they are in negotiating. What everyone needs to do is prepare, prepare, prepare. Rents right now in New York City have fallen, I don't know, eight, 18 or so percent. There was a woman who just posted on Next Door Neighbor a couple of days ago. I'm afraid to ask my landlord for a rent reduction. What are you afraid of? Go on street easy. There are thousands of apartments that are available. Print off five or six, lead with the evidence and figure out what you want. Is it lower rent? Is it a larger apartment for the same amount of money? We must prepare so that we move out of that place of the eye and move into the place of facts. Have you read um, Chatter by Ethan Cross? No. Okay, so he talks a lot about our inner dialogue and the way we talk to, about, talk to ourselves. The reason I asked about from we to I to get more specific in what you want is because he talks about going from I to we to become more secure and positive instead of negative on your inner, inner thoughts. So when you think of yourself as like removed, you're more gracious, which is exactly what you were saying in the example of advocating for someone else. And it was just really interesting, the overlap between, between those. It's right. I coach to it all the time. But when someone says, I'm afraid to ask, or I'm nervous about presenting, here's the question. If you're trying to do something while you've got that voice in your head, you're simply competing with yourself. The people around us, most of the people want us to be great. So if you're in your own head competing against yourself, that's going to impact your delivery. And guess what? 
we're all competing for raises and promotions and, and so on. If you're willing to do the dirty work and compete with yourself, the people around you don't have to. So why would you do that to yourself? So tell that voice, take a time out and know that the people around you are looking for success. Our senior leaders who hire us, they're hoping we're gonna be great. So take the handbrake off and go for it. So while we're talking about what they can do and prepare is great, but you know, there's definitely quite a few of us sitting in the background who, who are not or traditionally have not been. What else can they do or would you recommend to help one improve their negotiating skills? Practice. So Eric, you mentioned empathy before. Maggie Neal has a, a YouTube clip called uh, What I Learned From My Horse. It's a great little film and it is all about putting yourself in the other's shoes because she, the horse threw her and she was trying to force her will on the horse and the horse just kept backing off. And finally, she, she realized she would listened to the horse. So I wanted to come back to that for you, Erica. We need to practice. And what we do is we go practice when there's nothing to lose. Your weekend farmer's market. One of the things I miss about Paris is the Saturday markets, President Avenue Wilson. And it's a Saturday market, fresh flowers, fresh seafood. And you go there and you just practice for what you want. And there's this lovely lady and has this table stand of cashmere scarves. And I lose them all the time. So every time I go to Paris, I always make sure I get there so I can get the replacement. But I don't, it's not a live or die situation, but it's negotiating. Is there room for improvement? Yes, if you get three. Uh, which, by the way, that's called funny money. So this is something to know as well. We need to recognize when people are giving us funny money offers. The reason the price is better to buy five is because they've already made their money at two. Yeah. So we need to recognize funny money. So we need to practice. We need to go and practice where it, we have nothing to lose. When you're trying to haggle for that rug at the flea market, you know, just ask. Uh, and always start lower. Know where your walk away is and practice walking away and realize how good it feels to know that you're in control. You have the power because you don't have to say yes. There'll always be another rug. There will always be another car. There'll always be another refrigerator sale or another offer from J. Crew that's offering you 30% off a full price because they've already made their money at 70%. This has been amazing, but unfortunately, our time is coming to an end. So in interest of wrapping, as we always do, if you can just recommend one book or one piece of advice for our listeners, what would it be? Can I say more than one? Can sure. I say yes. Getting yes. to Yes, which is you know a seminal book on it. Can I say Chris Voss, uh, Never Split the Difference. Uh, Maggie Neal has a book out that's really great as well. There's so much good information out there. The more we study, the more we learn, the more powerful we'll be as negotiators. And all those people, Yuri, Voss, Maggie Neal, have great YouTubes as well. And then figure out what you want and go get it and go negotiate for that thing. Thank you for having me, Jacqueline, Erica. It was a joy. Pleasure was all ours. I'm so excited about this conversation. There's so many things that I could just keep asking you about and, you know, say, what do I do here? Help me. Well, I'm always here. Here's the commercial SP at TemplarAdvisors.com. Let me know whenever I can help you. And, and Jacqueline, thank you for the original invitation. Have a lovely day, ladies. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you all for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to us as much as we enjoy participating in the conversation. 
Now your homework is to be sure to like, subscribe, and let us know what you thought about today's discussion. And of course, find us online, 52weeksofme.net, with the number 5 and the number 2, and at Instagram at 52weeksofme, spelled out. Again, we love emails, so email us at 52weeksofme, spelled out, at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you all soon. Bye!